We've been spending a few weeks under the overall theme of the idea of choosing love and how our relationships so often are surrounded by these things in which we... um, we don't always do what is best for us in the midst of them. Last week, uh, there was a great conversation that happened on boundaries in relationships and the ways in which we should um, make sure that we are caring for ourselves, which helps us to care for others. And this morning, we're talking about bridges and how oftentimes we end up having to build bridges in our relationships, but also the way that God builds bridges to connect us to God. And so as we kind of prepare for our conversation today, or maybe as we start our conversation, I guess, where do you see in your life or in the scriptures God building bridges? Um, I would say, um, I talked a little bit about this this morning with the band, but um, You know, as we continue, it's Black History Month, and as we continue to um, do anti-racism work, I think um, especially those of us with white privilege um, start to maybe understand a little bit more about the black experience and what it means to live as a black person in America. Um, And I think doing that work is helping us, you know, build a bridge to... Understanding people's life experience. Mm. I think that's different than just like recognizing that there's racism or discrimination, but really hearing what it's like to live as a, as a black person. Yeah, and I think uh, going along with the life experience, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to accept that as the truth, you know, right. someone's life experience is what it was. Yeah. Um, and allowing that to be a bridge as opposed to something that, you know, you want to combat. Mm. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Laura, for people who, you know, we a lot of us think in um, binaries, mm-hmm. right? So you're either racist or you're not. Mm-hmm. Right? Will you explain what it means to be anti-racist? That may be a new term for some folks. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of um, uh, black educators um, have basically said, you know, we live in a racist society. It's not, it, it's... Think of it like a fish in water. Um, We are the fish, and the water is white supremacy. Um, We are surrounded by it, but it's so part of who we are as a nation that it's sometimes, I think, hard for us to see. Um, So it's really hard to hear, but many black educators say, like, we are all racist because we live in a racist society, right? We were... We grew up in a society that very much put us in categories of hierarchy. And we can't change that we grew up that way and that's the way our society is. But we can work against that. And anti-racism is um, really educating people about the black experience, about um, the pain and the suffering um, that black people experience every day living in America. Um, And... uh, and anti-racism is, is looking at how we can um, take down some of those systems that put in the hierarchies and build bridges so that we can understand each other's experience and that the white experience is not the default experience, um, even though we kind of assume that it is in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also goes along to make the difference between um, anti-racism being taking action of some sort to be mm-hmm. actively against right. um, racism. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of great work out there that you can check out. Um, I think probably the most well-known person is Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. Um, how to got, be anti-racist. Yeah, how to be an anti-racist. Um, but yeah, yeah. I just want to add that little bit. uber smart man, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, and I, I like the point, Vaughn, that you brought up at the beginning of this conversation, which is um, there's a shared lived experience but also, right, two things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can have a, right, like, I just took uh, my entire family to Disney World. And I can tell you, they had entirely different experiences, right? We were all in the same place, doing the same thing, um, eating the same food, but everybody had a different experience in the midst of that. Their lived experience at a wonderful place like Disney World was all very different. In the same way, all of us who have grown up in this country have different lived experiences. We can have both good and bad lived experiences and both can be true. Mm -hmm. There can be things that need to be fixed and at the same time you could have benefited from what has been currently happening, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think there is, uh, you know, as we seek to build bridges, there's a reminder in the midst of all of this work that we call anti-racist that in order for there to be, you know, what we often call equity, right? there's got to be some giving up of certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Laura, you talk about this often. Vaughn, I've heard you talk about it as well. So um, will you share a little bit about what that kind of work might look like? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I know over the pandemic, um, listened to a podcast on it. I think it was an episode of Code Switch, an NPR podcast. Um, and uh, they were talking about, you know, kind of direct action in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. there was a couple people who just put it out on social media, mm-hmm. like, hey, if you're, you know, a person that's white, um, here are all these people that you can directly send money to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like saying, evaluate, you know, what you could give and something that might, like, actually make you feel it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say mm-hmm. that you have to give everything away, mm-hmm. um, but just, you know, an, an amount that you would still be able to survive, but you might just have to consider, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is, you know. A little bit of a change. Bit. So I think it can be, it can be direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you also have to function within your spheres of influence, you know. Not, not everyone is able to write a law or pass it or um, those kinds of things. But being able to, you know, if someone says something that hits you kind of weird, then you can be like, hey, you know, why did you say that? Or mm-hmm. can you tell me more about why you would say that? Um, mm-hmm. or, and just standing up for people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it can look a lot of different ways. Um, and it is a lot based on, you know, who, who you're around mm-hmm. um, and what kind of influence you yeah. have in your personal circles. I too. like that, um, that phrase, your spheres of influence, because... Um, yeah, I think we often get paralyzed by thinking, well, I can't change the world, so I will do nothing. Um, I feel that way all the time. Um, what am I really doing? Am I, am I making any progress on, you know, changing the world? <laughs> and, uh, you know, you start to get down and belittle yourself and recognizing that there are small things we can do in our spheres of influence that make a big difference and that show other people that we are invested in work and works of liberation. So, for instance, you know, if you are a person in power, maybe you have someone on your team that um, in some way is 
discriminate against in the world. Um, maybe it's gender, sexuality, race, uh, socioeconomic. Um, there's many ways people can be discriminated, right? Um, and seeing that and finding ways to lift that person's voice up, to be heard, um, to give that person, empower them, to give, and you know, you will give up some power. You will give up some control by allowing that person's voice to be heard. And for many people, that is not, they're not gonna give up that power because that is how they feel, that is how they feel self-esteem, having control, having power. This is my thing, this is, um, but that is not how we can build the kingdom of God. It's only by this mutual humility where we allow other people to, to share their experience, and that means we'll give up some privilege, and that's that's something that I think if you have privilege, um, you have to think about like very intentionally, like where can I give, where can I empower people that are not empowered? Well, and, and it's biblical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus so often had to remind the disciples what it really means to be a servant of God, right? It is, a, there's the powerful moment at the Last Supper where Jesus begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Um, and there is an opportunity there that he had. These are the last hours of Jesus's life. And he can teach them either, right, I am the master and I'm to be obeyed. And when I am gone, you will be the masters and you will be obeyed. Or I am the teacher and you should follow what I do. And now you will be the teachers and you should teach people to follow as I do. And he washes the feet and act for a servant. And it is a, a reminder that when we truly are disciples of Christ, it's, it's not always about, and I think we hear this all the time, right? You just need to make a seat at the table for somebody. Sometimes it's about giving up the seat at the table so that somebody else's voice can be heard. Knowing that part of our work, part of our calling as disciples is to be servants, and that that looks differently out in the world than sometimes what we would expect. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's very real. And I keep coming back to 2020 because that was a big opportunity for some things to shift. And you know, with people having to be home and, and, and being so exposed to you know, things on social media and just having chances to reflect mm-hmm. um, and see other people, you know, as human beings, um, it really gave this opportunity uh, to, like you were saying, with give, giving up a seat at the table, right? To recognize that, oh, if we really want to create community, that might be mm-hmm. the best thing to do. Or mm-hmm. I don't need to try and come up with things to do for diversity when I have people here who know what they need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so being able to give up that seat in order to make everyone, you know, thrive. Yeah. Um, And in that servant leadership, in that giving up, that is power. I mean, we are most powerful in our weakness, Paul says. So that is what that means, that mutual humility. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the the greatest, like, things that a leader can do Mm -hmm. is to recognize where they might not know or where they have mm, where their blind these, spots yeah, are. have these yeah. blind spots yeah. um, and to be able to say you know what I know that you have this certain life experience and um, I'm just going to let you take the floor yeah. or even say like hey what am I missing here yeah <laughs> yeah 
I think it's, uh, I go back to several years ago, you got really popular, his story did on YouTube, Father Greg Boyle. And one of the things that he did was he began to try to create ministry um, opportunities for people who were coming out of the prison system. Oftentimes, if, if mm-hmm. you've got, um, you know, things on your record, it's really hard to get a job. Um, and as a, a, a priest, he recognized this. He saw a lot of gang violence in his community. And so he went and started talking to people. And he was like, well, why are you, you just got out of jail. Why are you back doing this again? I'm like, what are, I don't have any opportunities yeah. to What's make the money. Other like, options? No one will give me a chance. And so he began to um, create all of these opportunities um, for people who didn't have opportunities. Um, and it's called Homeboy Industries. And, you know, they've got bakeries and laundromats and um, that now are in one of the airports in the area, or at least they were um, before the pandemic. And, you know, somebody asked him, they said, you know, you've, you've done such great things. You did so much. Um, how did you do it? And I think my, my, one of the reasons I like him so much is he said, well, you know, I didn't do anything. I just allowed myself to be present where God was showing up. God was the one doing the work. I was there. And I think so often as we think about, you know, the, the changing um, shifts and flows in the way that our country is moving and has moved in the past, and there is always a moment where we go, oh, I think God's at work right now. And the real question when you talk about a seat at the table versus giving up a seat at the table versus anti-racism work or any of the work is, are we going to, as people called by Christ, be where God is moving? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to find ourselves at the center of, right, um, you know, I I think about all the time Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, letters from Birmingham jail, right, of, are you... The, the worst thing that can happen is all of the people sitting in their churches on Sunday mornings doing nothing, right? who feel a great plight, who feel empathy, but who do nothing. So are we going to, like Father Boyle, be at the forefront of where God is moving? Or are we going to be very empathetic to a plight of people suffering and yet be doing nothing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even when you know I come here on Sunday morning and, and pray, I, I have that heavy on my heart. It's like, okay, we're praying and praying is good. <laughs> we all need to, you know, come together and pray to our God. I do think prayer works. Um, but, you know, in prayer, a lot of times I'm like, but are we doing enough? Are we doing enough action? <laughs> are we just, you know, paying lip service? And, you know, sometimes that weighs on me as, as a, a white kind of suburban, I don't know what my situation, situatedness in the world is, but working in a suburban area of affluence, um, it weighs on my heart that, you know, we're not, we're not building bridges as much as we could. So one of the, um, the scriptures that we had kind of looked at today comes from Exodus 20. It's familiar to a lot of us that grew up in church, but maybe not for those who didn't. Um, and it is uh, God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And um, in, in the midst of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments, um, what happens is God builds a bridge between God and God's people, right? They have been um, led by Moses out of Egypt, uh, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and now they have reached a moment where they need to be guided towards God once again. 
They've been in Egypt for so long, oppressed for so long, they don't know how to be in relationship with God anymore. And so God builds this bridge in the form of a covenant that we call the Ten Commandments. Um, And they are um, rules that are supposed to help um, God's people know, well, what does it mean to be in relationship with you? And the first section of them, the first four, are about what it means to be in relationship with God. The last six are about what it means to be in relationship with one another. And so I, I think it's interesting, given the, the conversation that we started with today, which, um, you know, when we sit down to talk, it's, it's true podcast form. We had no idea where this conversation was really <laughs> going to go. Um, and, but given the light of, okay, how are we in relationship with God? All right, and what does that mean for us as Christians and followers who are seeking to do God's work in the world? Right? We had an, an interesting conversation on that, but also, what does it mean for us to be in relationship with one another? And so I think about the Ten Commandments and that, um, but there's this, um, I forget the guy's name, um, but he said, you know, um, in terms of being in relationship with God, it took Moses Ten Commandments, it took um, the prophet Micah three right? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. But it only took Jesus too, mm. right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I, I think when we think about this overarching conversation we're having in the midst of this, God chooses to be in relationship with us. God chooses to love us. God chooses to show us how to be in relationship with God. But God also tries to teach us how to be in relationship with one another. And the Ten Commandments are, are things like, right, honor your father and mother and don't steal and don't kill people, which is easy for most of us, <laughs> right? Um, and yet, right, when Jesus simplifies it, it's love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you know, for, for children, we say, right, uh, oh, well, don't do anything to somebody else that you wouldn't want have done to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we have to remind them over and or at least I do in my house. Maybe your children are perfect. Um, but of hey, would would you want someone to push you down? Well, no. Well, then please don't do that to your sister, right? Um, or like, hey, do you want someone to grab things out of your hand? Well, no. Well, please don't do that to your sister. Obviously, Audrey, our youngest, has a really hard time in our house right now. <laughs> um, but you know, it's that interesting thing of seat at the table, not seat at the table, right? Would you want? to have your voice heard? Well, yes, well then let's make sure somebody else's voice is heard. Would you want your children to grow up in a place where they feel safe and comfortable and you know that no matter what happens, they're gonna be able to grow and thrive in any environment because the systems around them are set up that way? Okay, well then let's make sure that's happening for other people. Um, and I think really, as, as God builds a bridge of love towards us, there is the reminder that Jesus gives us that we're also supposed to build bridges of love towards other mm-hmm. people. And I think it's also a reminder that, at least I believe, that the world is full of abundance. And I don't think that someone giving up their seat means that there's less room right. at the table. Um, yeah, we, it's almost like we have an illusion that yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's almost like an illusion of scarcity. But... I truly do believe that there is abundance. And when we're all able to take up that space, it's actually a greater thing. Mm, yes. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the, the word zoe is used a lot, which means like life abundant. I mean, just all the time it talks about 
Jesus gives, the, gives us this zoe, and we can only do that when we're all doing it together. It's not the fullness, the abundance of life completely, yeah. if it's just one subsection of people. It's not the full image of God. Well, and I think, um, I like the way that you said it, because there was the, it was popular terminology a few years ago, right, the scarcity mindset. None of us believe we have enough. Um, and there, uh, there's so many books about it, and I can't think of a single one on the spot. Um, but it's this idea that if we were to like poll the room and everybody online this morning would say, okay, how many of you feel like you have enough? Almost everybody would say, eh, maybe, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, the statistic, at least uh, you know, seven or eight years ago, was that if you had a roof over your head, you were in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Just a roof over your head. Top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. And the, the first time I, I read that, um, I was talking to my wife, Caitlin, and I said, um, we're in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world, but I don't feel wealthy. I don't feel like we have, we're, we're living paycheck to paycheck right now, right? Like the pantry's empty, um, and we're playing a little game right now called what can we make from the freezer, <laughs> right? Um, and yet, right, and, and I think we do this all the time, compared to others around the world, they would look at us and be like, man, you have everything. Mm-hmm. You have a house, you have a freezer, right? You have a pantry that has, you know, some stables in it, right? Like you have so much and it's, it, and it's this comparison trap and we always compare up. We never compare down, right? So we look at our friends and we go like, yeah, boy, but I don't have, you know, a three-car garage. I don't have a, a, a you know, the latest gaming system. I don't have a PS5 or, an, you know, I don't have any of that, right? We're not wealthy. They're wealthy, right? We don't have abundance. They have abundance. We're struggling, right? Yeah, and that's why um, I, you know, I look at capitalism, our, our economic system, and it really puts us in that space of I don't have enough because someone always has more than us. And I think in a capitalist mindset, it's let's get more and more and more. And the problem with that is that you are never filled with abundance because you can never have, you can never buy enough material goods to satisfy your soul. Simon Sinek, um, in his book, Leaders Eat Last, uh, says that the system of capitalism um, actually works best when companies put people first. Mm-hmm. But so often, companies begin to see people as a commodity in their production cycles. And so, you know, then you get massive layoffs or you get, you know, okay, well, you can't have access to these parts unless you come through this chain link fence and you check it out. Or like, you don't get to choose when you have lunch. We choose when you have lunch. And people get seen as commodities Mm -hmm. instead of people. And, And he has great examples in his book of different companies and different organizations that began to put people first, Mm -hmm. and they still make profit within the system of capitalism, but they care for people, and people feel Mm -hmm. like they're part of something. And so I think, you know, everything works well when we care for one another. Mm -hmm. The challenge is when we start caring for ourselves over one another, Mm -hmm. and in the midst of everything, there is this reminder over and over again from Jesus of love your neighbor as yourself. 
Treat people the way you want to be treated. Lift people up. Don't leave people on street corners, crippled and injured and hurt and suffering. Don't leave people to go to wells by themselves because you don't like the way that they're living their life. Don't leave people behind because they don't fit your idea of the way people should be. Find them and care for them. And yes, I think there are systems in place that fundamentally lead to people hurting people because, hey, you know what? Overall, my goal is to do this. Mm -hmm. And if I want to do this, yeah, I have to leave some people in the dust. Um, And I think there are are always going to be better systems to put in place. But ultimately, systems are just that. Right. Ultimately, any system can be used for harm or used for good. And it's, it's how we, as humans, decide to use that system. I like the way that you said that. All right, final thoughts. I, I, you know, Vaughn, you talking about just that you believe there is abundance. I, I don't know, that really spoke to me today um, because I, I definitely live in a scarcity mindset a lot of the times and just connecting that to Jesus telling us over and over again that Jesus is here to give us abundant life if we would accept it. But instead we're, we're chasing a Tesla or whatever, you know, like we're chasing these things that we think is going to give us an abundant life. And Jesus is going, it's right here. I'm telling you, but we don't believe it. Yeah. And I think being a full-time musician, there's just so many of these um, examples of where there's competitions, you know, where you win and you get some kind of accolade or like, Mm. I just came from the Grammys, um, a group that I'm in, we were nominated for best arrangement. Um, And, you know, things like that, where that can really change the course of your career. Mm -hmm. It it can make you feel like if you don't have that, then you have less. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of people out there, especially for musicians and creative people um, that are saying, yeah, like, it's okay. Like, if, even if you help someone else shine, like, that is good for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just thinking about, you know, the, the guy that wrote the arrangement, Matt Cusan, um, thinking about all of the awesome, you know, news articles and, and news stories and just people who are aware of his music now mm-hmm. uh, because we sang an arrangement of his. Yeah. Um, so even just something like that is, is amazing. And it makes me think of, yeah, like if we're doing this together, then there is abundance. And when we try to isolate or try to hold it all for ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, there ends up being less. Mm-hmm. Even if that's just less good music, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. You know, my late partner used to say this, and I, I never really understood it, but I, I think as I live more, I understand it. Um, I remember when I first met him, I asked him, like, oh, are you trying to make it? Make it big in the music industry, you know? I'm thinking, be famous. And he goes, I have made it. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I make a really good living being a musician and doing what I love. I've made it. Like, that's an abundance life set, right? I think, um, you know, it's interesting when you think about musicianship because there's a whole thing a few years ago of this company that was copywriting every single, like, chord progression you could possibly make in music so that when people started to try to make new music they would end up having to make them co-writers on the song and they would always get a piece of the the proceeds, um, which creates scarcity in the music industry. It's really hard to make things if somebody has used a computer to make every possible instrumentation come to life. 
And so there was this guy, and he was like, well, you can do that, but so can I. And he copyrighted all of it as well, but then made it fair use Mm. so that people would be able to still create music and not have to worry about, well, am I about to put this out and have it be copyrighted? Am I about to put this out and get a lawsuit? Because then what happens is there's no more music. People get too afraid to make music. And so I think this idea of living out of abundance, but also doing what he did, he saw something that was about to be oppressive in the system. He could see the writing on the wall of what this company is trying to do is going to overall harm people and musicians and things that are coming. We too can see the writing on the wall in systems that we are a part of, in places where we know that there is not enough voices that need to be heard. And we can be, like Father Greg, where God is going to be. God is with the oppressed. God is with the marginalized. God is with the hurting and the destitute and the poor. And God is calling us to be those bridge builders and to show that love of neighbor to everyone as God has shown it to us. And that's the calling in the midst of that. Um, And I think that's how we live in abundance. It is that reminder of, um, you know, see a need, fill a need at its simplest. Um, But, you know, Jesus simplified a lot of complicated things. Mm. Um, And ultimately it is, if we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we love our neighbors as ourselves because Mm. we we are living in the love of God and then we're able to share the love of God in a new way. Well, as always, we want to continue the conversation. And so um, if you had something stir up for you today, um, we'll be around afterwards. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, Maybe you like the things that we said. Um, Maybe you disagree with us. Um, Maybe you have some um, knowledge that you want to share with us that you wish we had known when we were having this conversation. Um, We want to talk to you. Um, We want to hear your voices. And so if you uh, want to hang around afterwards, we'd love to be in conversation. If you're joining us online or you are hearing this later in podcast form, send us a message. We'd love to continue to be in conversation with you. Um, Thank you so much to Vaughn and to Laura for a wonderful conversation today. Um, And um, as always, a different door is just a different kind of worship experience. It's a chance for conversation, and we always want to leave the door open for those conversations.